Imagine it's 1860 and Abraham Lincoln has won the nomination for President of the United States representing the Republican Party. The Southern Democratic states had already threatened to secede from the Union if he won, and they did so in 1861. They formed a government and called themselves the Confederate States of America, or CSA. They emphasized that the American institution of slavery was essential to the survival of the South. Lincoln was not terribly interested in abolishing slavery in the South. He was more concerned with preserving the Union. He tried to alleviate the fears of the South and white slave-owning society in general, but they didn't believe or trust him. There was something suspicious and even ominous about the ideas affirming that all humans were equal, no matter what Lincoln or the preamble of the Declaration of Independence promised. Enter Alexander Hamilton Stevens. He was a Georgia politician who became vice president of the Confederate States of America. Stevens' staunch disagreement with Lincoln and the notion of human equality was made very clear in his March 21, 1861 Cornerstone speech. This is Dr. Catherine Bancoli Medina with the invention of racism. The goal of this podcast series is to share the subtle and not so subtle nuances of racism from the past into the 21st century. Understanding and speaking the truth about racism is the first step toward combating and ultimately eliminating it. In his cornerstone speech, Alexander Stevens was unmistakable in his thought that the government of the Confederacy would adhere to no broad ideas about human equality. He said essentially that the foundation of the CSA was, quote, the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition, end quote. He bragged that the Confederacy would be the first nation in the world founded on this anti-human equality principle. Northern anti-slavery advocates and those espousing the humanity of enslaved Africans were deemed fanatics. As such, they were defective or otherwise insane. Abolitionists were foolish to assume, quote, that the Negro is equal and hence conclude that he is entitled to equal privileges and rights with the white man, end quote. As the Cornerstone speech lays the historical groundwork, this podcast episode briefly examines recent examples of public political racist discourse leading up to the 2022 U.S. midterm election season. As if there isn't enough salacious mainstream news being presented, from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States, the attempted coup, and a multitude of other serious legal matters involving the former president, number 45, we are inundated with a spate of reports featuring public displays of racist rhetoric and racist coded language. Now generally, and in my opinion, the corporate media tends to suggest that racism writ large doesn't even exist, if not entangled with the latest sensational breaking news. At the same time, media content about racism is a monetizable commodity now, much like everything else. And while none of this is new, 
there seems to be more attention paid to racist speech with the rise of 45, the MAGA party, and ultra right wing Republican conservatives. While public displays of racism are not limited to the extreme factions of the Republican party, in some democratic sectors, racism is also endemic, though it occasionally effectively masquerades behind calls for interracial solidarity. Agree or disagree, but just keep this in mind. Politics is a blood sport where racism is an important and often used weapon. So there are the recent cases of Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, Georgia Senator Marjorie Taylor Greene, and former Los Angeles County City Council President Nuri Martinez. The racist rhetoric they espoused was widely reported in The Hill, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, and countless, countless news outlets across the country. Their comments have become important to media because this is another existential political season, but not because racist speech is considered a vital journalistic content in the national landscape. These reports are generally presented with some modicum of clickbait outrage without mentioning why racist words, the rhetoric, are so heinous. And there are distinct differences between Tuberville, Green, and Martinez. The two Republicans, Tuberville and Green, are Southerners who are staunch allies of the former president. They can often be found on the campaign trail on his or the GOP's behalf. Martinez, is a West Coast Democrat who spent a decade on the embattled LA City Council and served as its president. Now, before starting his political tenure as a US Senator in 2020, with the support from the former president, Tuberville, AKA coach, had an extensive head football coaching career from which he retired. Yet many might remember that Tuberville was involved in a federal lawsuit concerned with a fraudulent hedge fund scheme. A decade later, at the mid-October rally in question, in the state of Nevada, Tuberville stated that Democrats, quote, want reparations because they think the people that do the crime are owed that, end quote. Many critics said that there was no mistake that a negative and harmful association was being made between crime and the African-American population not to mention the attack on reparations demands. Marjorie Taylor Greene, on the other hand, who has been in Congress since 2021, has been repeatedly associated with quite a few far right wing conspiracies, including QAnon. And you can do uh, independent research and find out so much about how uh, not just scholars who are writing about this, but also journalists link uh, Senator Green to these ideas. Remember that the adherents of the QAnon cult believe that a secret group of satanic, cannibalistic pedophiles are operating a worldwide child sex trafficking organization specifically associated with members of the liberal political elite involving Democrats and Jews, meaning they're blamed for this. And they believe that the former president is their champion of sorts. Green, at a different political rally, raised concerns over the Great Replacement conspiracy theory as well. It is a white nationalist fear 
that black and brown immigrants will displace white Americans. It should be noted that the political rally sponsored by the former president demands cultists like loyalty from Republican senators who still believe that he is the actual president of the U.S. I know. All of this can largely be explained for its performative value. Think words like pandering, delusion, power grab, and other terms used by scholars like Kira Hall and others who suggested the words comedy, entertainment, gesture, humor, depiction, politics, and spectacle to describe the populist appeal of 45. Now, in the case of Nuri Martinez, two other city councilmen, and the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor Chief, their leaked conference call was immediately described as a political scandal. Apparently, no one was supposed to hear the taped conversation that was disclosed to the media. The discussion was recorded a year ago. The conversation was a strategy session seemingly intended to identify political threats and allies and how to approach and influence electoral redistricting plans which would inordinately impact African-American voters. In the recording, Martinez managed to casually insult homosexuals, indigenous immigrants in general, and the inhabitants of the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca, specifically. Of the Oaxacans, who are often negatively targeted in Mexico, she said that they were, quote, little short dark people, unquote, and so ugly. There was also contempt for the white gay city council member who had a young black son. Martinez said that she thought the two-year-old boy was being disruptive on a Martin Luther King Jr. parade float and called him a little monkey in Spanish, saying also that he needs a beat down. She implied that the little boy, the little black boy was akin to an accessory for his white gay father and that the toddler needed parenting because <laughs> that, that, that the child that the that the child that the little child needed parenting because he was acting like a little white kid. The three males on the call either laughed or were silent at her comments, which seemed to indicate that she was trying to make jokes of some sort. Under public pressure by black activists, Martinez immediately resigned from the LA City Council. And while it doesn't in any way excuse her racist, homophobic, and anti-Indigenous comments, if you read well into the public records surrounding the combative LA City Council, coupled with the time release of the mysterious tape, Martinez was also the subject of a deliberate political takedown. In all three cases, the denial of human equality is striking. You see how racist speech rejects the concepts of humanness and egalitarianism in order to maintain, among many other things, the common modality of anti-blackness. The three cases also reproduce deep-seated racist stereotypes. Collectively, the four main ideas that stem from this, from these, uh, these, this speech and rhetoric are reparations, crime, immigrants, and black children. So let's start briefly with reparations. Civil rights activist Daniel Smith recently died. His father was briefly enslaved as an infant, making Daniel Smith just one generation removed from, American, from the system of American slavery. Calls for reparations 
compensation for African Americans is a long-standing demand from early from the early days of the Republic of New Africa and in Cobra to HR 40 the Congressional Commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans Act the demand for reparations is designed to recognize harm and provide remedy to the descendants of enslaved Africans and to acknowledge and compensate for the generational after effects of slavery, such as Jim Crow, racial segregation, and systemic racism. Black people all over the world are demanding reparations for the suffering of their enslaved ancestors. And as with African Americans, calls for reparations are immediately contested, usually met with some derision, and the general inability to conceive that a wrong was even committed against black people. Next, crime. Crime has always been a societal issue weaponized against black people as a group. It is the outlandish generalized assertion that black people commit more crime than anyone else in society and therefore are not entitled to the benefits of citizenship and thus should be treated differently. Racial criminalization and outlaw labels preemptively ju justifies discrimination and the over-incarceration of black people. It has become an important neo-racist talking point. It fuels racial profiling and how actual punishments for crimes are determined. Turning to immigration, we know that immigration policy is a concern of many nations, including the United States. Debates over policies, practice, and procedures often come with negative inferences, centering immigrants who are black and brown and thus not deemed worthy of humane treatment. They are often viewed through the stereotypic lens of crime and are at the same time the real subjects of the Great Replacement Theory. You can listen to my podcast on the Great Replacement Theory, but it's the idea that vast numbers of immigrants are coming to the U.S. and Europe to supplant the white population specifically um, and that they are arriving to take jobs and resources and to exclude white people from the political power through massive voting blocks. Finally, there is the matter of black children. As a class of vulnerable people are easily the focus of blame for societal ills. Racist private and public discourse uses black childhood as a special container for social disruption and unruliness. Black children are, according to the traditional racist narrative, perennially in need of parenting and discipline, and after all of that, have been the subject of racist simian comparisons. Okay, so let's go back to the cornerstone ideas of the CSA Vice President, Alexander Stevens. His ideas are aligned with the deeply rooted racist beliefs of the slaveocracy. The historical context of the cornerstone speech also addressed the issues of reparations, crime, immigrants, and black children. Reparations were important to the operations of the American system of slavery, but only for the slaveholders. Laws included forms of compensation when slaveholders lost or had a slave damaged. Historian Tara Hunter has noted that in 1862, quote, President Abraham Lincoln signed a bill emancipating enslaved people in Washington, the end of a long struggle but to ease slave owners' pain. The District of Columbia 
Emancipation Act paid those loyal to the Union up to $300 for every enslaved person freed, end quote. Enslaved Africans were criminalized because it confirmed racist ideas about Africanity, solidified the need to keep them in bondage, and was especially reinforced when they resisted and fought back against slavery. As a result of their forced migration, enslaved Africans were seen as alien non-citizens, a commodified source of free labor. Yet, at the same time, it was argued that enslaved Africans took jobs from poor white people and that if left unchecked, they would overtake and ultimately replace the white population, especially in the South. In the 1860 U.S. Census, we find that in Hines County, Mississippi, enslaved Africans and freed people of color outnumbered the white population by nearly three to one. There were always concerns that rebellions would break out in areas of the South where the enslaved African population was larger than that of white people. Finally, enslaved African children were subjected to cruel treatment that reinforced racist negative stereotypes. They were routinely separated from their parents and slaveholders would threaten to sell or bequeath children to keep the slave population obedient. Black children were compared to baby monkeys and assumed to be innately bestial and disruptive. Enslaved African mothers were worried about the violent beating of their children. Harriet Ann Jacobs in her 1861 incidents in the life of a slave girl said, quote, when I lay down beside my child, I felt how much easier it would be to see her die than to see her master beat her about as I daily saw him beat the other little ones." End quote. And we should never forget, since we're talking about Harriet Jacobs' uh, narrative, that slave girls as young as their early teens were exploited and impregnated. As an unprotected class, enslaved black children were vulnerable institutional commodities who were incredibly vulnerable. So finally, in his cornerstone speech, Alexander Stevens leaves us with two potent ideas which confirm the power of racist political discourse intended to deny human equality. First, Stevens argued in his summation that the Confederacy sought peace with the North and the rest of the world for that matter, but that the new CSA had to be accepted on their own terms which was the professed right to subjugate African people. Second, Stevens also heavily referenced the future. He predicted that the Union would give way to the Confederate government, believing profoundly that the CSA had a special destiny and mission. But as you know, the South lost the Civil War in 1865, and the Confederate Army surrendered. Stevens was jailed for treason against the United States in 1865. He served a sentence of five months. He eventually went on to a very brief, to very briefly serve as governor of Georgia. And he wrote a compendium of the history of the United States, a textbook meant for young white students through college age. Yet in the end, what continues to reverberate after more than a century and a half are the entrenched racist myths and ideas that fuel public and private political discourse and the willingness to debate the existence 
of human equality. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Support for independent podcasts like The Invention of Racism is critical at this moment. In the national and global effort to dismantle racism and to establish human equality, we need as many thoughtful and courageous voices as possible. If you believe in and appreciate this anti-racism podcast, continue to download, like, share, and support us. I also encourage you to honestly analyze, examine, and put an end to racism. And if you're listening to this podcast series, then you already know. Discourse on racism is not for the faint of heart. I hope that you will continue to join me as I present key topics in the invention of racism.